Have you ever wondered why sharks don't get sick? Or can we use science to extend human life expectancies so that we can live better and longer lives? I go over all these questions in today's episode of Goggles Off as I interview Professor of Cellular and Biomolecular Engineering at the University of Texas at Austin, Professor Elizabeth Cosgrove Hernandez. We talk about all the fascinating research her laboratory is doing as well as the critical importance of racial and gender diversity in the scientific workspace. Join us for an insightful dive into this world of tissue engineering and biomimicry all in this episode of Goggles Off. Welcome everybody to another episode of Goggles Off. Today it's my absolute pleasure uh, to be joined by Professor Elizabeth Cosgrove Hernandez, who is a professor in biomedical engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, Dr. Cosgrove Hernandez, how are you today? Good, good. Excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's really an absolute pleasure. So one thing I wanted to do first was unpack your research a little bit for the audience. So could you tell me what sort of research your laboratory does and how you first got involved in that research? Sure, so I'm a polymer engineer. So I make polymers and plastics for medical devices. And so we do a lot of different kinds of applications, but really we're about making new biomaterials that can help devices work better so that people can live better and longer. Um, and so I first got into this looking when I started my, my undergraduate in biomedical engineering at Case Western Reserve University. And I just kind of gelled with biomaterials, things that I could actually get my hands on and make work. And I just really dived into that deeper in my PhD in polymer science. And so our lab really takes advantage of understanding polymers in a deeper way to design better biomaterials. Um, and we love to take lessons from nature in order to um, design those better. So nature is probably the best materials designer ever. I always say that it's amazing that we can send someone into space, but we can't make cartilage as good as the body does. So I really like to combine that kind of bio inspiration from the body uh, with my polymer science background on synthetic materials. Awesome. Yeah, that's really incredible. I also think biomaterials is just an incredible field and that biology has had you know, millions of years to evolve these incredible polymers. One that I remember as a kid, I was watching Shark Week and I had heard about uh, this technology, this, this phenomenon that sharks don't really get sick. They're very healthy mm -hmm. creatures. And it's mm -hmm. because their skin, the patterning on their skin is actually such that microbes can't really land on them. And then I heard that in, in the hospital, they're starting to apply this, this uh, coating to scalpels and, and tools that they use for surgery to prevent infections during surgery. So I thought I was like, wow, this is so incredible. Velcro is another great example of, mm -hmm. of a bio, a biotechnology that was taken from nature. So yeah, biomaterials is an incredible field. Um, I was curious, you said to live better and longer. So not just, you know, making people live longer, but making them live better. What does that really mean? So we really want to restore full functionality so people can actually can enjoy their lives to the fullest, right? So this may be not just about someone being able to uh, not have their leg amputated, but actually fully restore uh, function so that they walk, can walk and run 
and really enjoy their time with their family or whatever they enjoy doing. And so it's not just about, you know, helping people get back to functional recovery, but like fully enjoying and and integrating into their life. Gotcha. Yeah, that that makes sense. One thing uh, when I was, you know, doing some research into your background, I saw this conference and you talked about this idea of, of creating an injury to fix an injury with this idea of an autograph. So an autograph being you take uh, some biomaterial, some cartilage out of a person and then use that to fix an injury. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit, this idea of creating an injury to fix one? Yeah, so it it's really just goes back to the thing, to the idea that we are still, as biomedical engineers, we're still catching up with what nature can do. And so in a lot of instances, we can't do it as well as the body can do it. And so we're still using a lot of organ transplants and we're using what are called autographs. So an organ transplant would be, you know, from one patient to another patient, like a kidney transplant. Um, But there are other cases where we could take bone from one part of your body to heal another part of your body. And so a lot of times this may be from like your lower leg and and using it. But, you know, when we do that, um, we're creating an injury. And so when we're talking about people living longer and better, yeah, if we take that that autograph from their leg and it allows us to restore function and allows us to uh, treat the, the original injury, but now that person's going to have long-term pain in that leg and they may not have the full activity from that leg. Um, but we do that because we're not as good as the body. And so what tissue engineering is really trying to do is, is just help the body heal itself in a way that we can fully recapitulate the, the complexity and function of native tissue so that we don't have to take it from the body to get the same level as function. And so we do a lot of tissue engineering and then we do a lot of de- like synthetic devices as well um, to help people. Incredible, yeah. It sounds like a tall order to, to mimic nature. It's got yeah. a couple million <laughs> years on you. Um, so how do you identify problems you wish to tackle with your research, like relevant medical problems? Yeah, so what we work on, as I said, we're a polymer engineer. So we're problem solvers from the material side. So a lot of times what we work on is based on who we are working with. So we have applications in vascular grafts and heart valves and bone grafts. And more recently, we had a exciting collaboration with an electrophysiologist um, from Texas Heart Institute. So this is a practicing clinician who helps people when their heart's heartbeat gets off. So they have these ventricular arrhythmias. And they came to us because they have they have this problem. So right now, what they're doing. Uh, when you have these irregular heartbeats that can be life-threatening, they go in and they try to, they basically, they do something called ablation. So they kill off the signaling in the heart that's causing the arrhythmias. But what are we doing? We're, we're killing tissue in the heart. Um, and the, it, it works in a lot of cases and it's life-saving, but it, it doesn't work in a number of cases. And actually my sister-in-law has this um, as well. And so it's, it's very scary, right? Because you have a risk of sudden cardiac death. And so they wanted a new approach. And that new approach would be about creating an injectable hydrogel electrode that could go in and create a new, new way to pace the heart that wasn't possible with current pacemaker leads. And so that's the combination where a clinician coming to us is looking to do a new approach, clinical approach for a treatment, and they just need a new material 
because current materials aren't able to meet that need. And that's, that's like the perfect kind of problem that I love to work with. Uh, and it's a, a very exciting collaboration. That's with Dr. Mehdi Razavi at uh, Texas Heart Institute. So it's definitely one of my most fun collaborations, but we have collaborations with other clinicians as well. Um, similarly, Dr. Julie Hackham uh, from Baylor College of Medicine, or sorry, Baylor um, is a pediatric gynecologist and she has something similar where after vaginal reconstruction, they don't have anything to help these uh, patients heal well. And so we're working with her on design, designing a vaginal stent. So it's really coming from a lot of times coming from the clinical side, identifying what's not working right now with medical devices and how do we make that better? Wow. Yeah. Exciting research indeed. A lot of, you know, when reading your laboratory page, a lot of it just seems like science fiction that you would read about in like some sort of stellar novel, but it's actually like you're doing these things and it's really, really incredible. So I wanted to ask what motivated your path to becoming a scientist um, and specifically, you know, what motivated you to choose this area for your scientific research? Yeah. So I was very fortunate that, um, I had a lot of opportunities as a kid to think about science. My dad was a chemist, a PhD chemist, worked for Dow Chemical. And so he was always asking us questions, right? Like asking us questions about the world around us. And so I think that instilled a native, you know, just curiosity about how things work. Um, and then I think, you know, in, in high school, if you're good at math and science, I think they say you should be an engineer. But I, I really think we need to stop saying that and say, if you like to solve problems, which I really do, then you should be an engineer. And so I kind of latched on to engineering early um, because I had both the desire to solve problems and was good at math and science. Um, and I had a, a unique experience to do a science fair project with a, a organization called the Southwest SIDS Research Institute. And so that's with SIDS is sudden infant death syndrome. And one of the things that they were doing at the time was doing a lot of monitoring of infants to try to understand what was, you know, what were predictors of when they would have an apnea event, for example, or uh, what they could really do to try to understand this. So at my science fair project was working with them and I got to go to a conference. And at that conference, I went around looking at all these posters and it was just amazing to me, all these people working to help people and solve problems. And it was just the connections between science and healthcare and understanding the human body that just really gelled for me. And that really drove me to, I was like, I don't know what this is, but this is what I wanna do. And so I found out it was called biomedical engineering. Uh, so I applied to biomedical engineering programs. There weren't as many back then as there are now. Um, we've really seen an explosion of those programs in part due to the Whitaker Foundation. Um, and so it was, you know, the more I got into it, the more along that path, I was just like, yes, this is what I want to do. And then kind of narrowing it down into materials as just being my natural jive, I guess I'll say. Awesome. I totally agree with a lot of the things you said. One thing being that you know, if you're, oh, if you're good at math and you're good at science, you should be an engineer. I think that is also incorrect. For example, for me, I was actually really bad at math, like not bad at it, but it was by far my worst subject. Um, mm -hmm. And here I am earning my PhD in biomedical engineering. And I also, you know, was a successful chemist for a really long time. And so 
I think if you're curious about the world and you want to solve problems, I think you should become a scientist or you should become an engineer. And I don't think people should put themselves in a box because they're good at one thing and bad at another thing. I mean, especially because a lot of the things that you're good at in school have a lot to do with what you what opportunities you've had up to that point. And so um, I think that the more we can get students and kids involved in some of the more applied parts of what engineering and science is, I think the more people we will recruit to to the dark side. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> to the dark side. Yeah, that actually kind of reminds me of one of the outreach programs your lab does where you go to middle schools and you have PhD students present their research to them. Is that kind mm -hmm. of why you do this to, to increase outreach? Yeah, I, I really think that early exposure, um, a lot of studies have pointed to middle school as being one of the key inflection points. Um, so we've done a lot of different, different outreach activities at all different levels. So we do, we've done middle school outreach, um, when, we, when I was at Texas A&M, we did local middle school outreach. Um, when we were in Houston, we did more high school level outreach with different science clubs and um, different uh, virtual programs as well. At UT, you know, UT has a couple really amazing programs like Girls Day um, and UT um, Explore, which is really great. It opens up the campus to the local communities to really be able to highlight what, what science and engineering, what we're doing is and I think for for our students and trainees it's really important for them to be able to explain things at that level and a, a lot of my students are very passionate about this so we do it a fair amount of my lab. Awesome yeah very 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 cool I wish you know some PhD students told me what it was all about when I was in seventh grade but I <laughs> yeah. was I was wearing skinny jeans and, and bright neon colored t-shirts so I don't know if I was ready for it. I um, think you're totally ready for it. <laughs> well and I also say like for as a student, one of the things you come around to is, um, you know, Einstein said, if you can't explain something simply, you don't really understand it. So being able to explain it to a lay audience and to kids is just one of the key things that actually help them understand their own research better. Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think one of the big missteps of the scientific community is this idea that only scientists can understand the jargon that scientists use. That's why part of this podcast is just making it friendly and accessible for the general public. Right. Um, so are there any really standout moments in your career? I mean, it's, it's incredible. I mean, your resume is just like pages and pages of publications and, and book chapters and patents and all these crazy things. But are there any really standout moments where you kind of reflect on, you're like, wow, that was incredible? I mean, so many. We're so privileged and fortunate to have had so many great opportunities. And I would say that the pivotal moments in my career have always been about collaborations and the and getting to work with such amazing people. Um, so when I was an undergrad, I went and talked to, you know, a Palmer scientist, uh, Dr. Ann Hiltner, and was able to start doing undergrad research with her. And I just see these as like kind of stepping stones in my life. Um, and then after I finished my PhD, I was originally thinking I was going to industry. And so my, she had advised me to think about academia. And so at that time it was, it was, do I wanna continue in medical device design? And I really wanted to explore tissue engineering or drug delivery. And I had the amazing opportunity to do a, a postdoc, which is like residencies for PhDs, uh, two years at Rice University. So I got to come back to Texas. I'm a Texas girl, so that was beneficial. 
But I worked with Tony Mikos and I just had this kind of 90 degree turn in my career and, and got to learn all about tissue engineering. That was my first introduction to it because it wasn't part of our curriculum as an undergrad. Um, and that was just an amazing opportunity. And then I could just continue like our first collaborations with Magnus Hook got us into this idea of um, bacterial collagens and integrin targeting. So just ways that we can talk to the body better. Uh, such an amazing opportunity and just so supportive in terms of collaborations. And then I mentioned that, you know, the two newer collaborations with Julie Hakim and, and Mehdi Rizavi, like just amazing opportunities to use our science in new and interesting ways. And I really feel like that I've been very driven, a lot of like the opportunities and, op and just career boosting, if you want, um, have been because of, I've been very fortunate to have all of these collaborators. And again, I have been exceptionally fortunate to have amazing, amazing graduate students and undergraduate students who just really, you know, are great collaborators and have really driven a lot of these collaborations. Awesome. Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts about being a scientist as well is, you know, you could stay isolated in your lab and only do what your lab is turning out. But really, when you start to expand and really get crazy papers to come out is when you reach out to other labs and start talking to them and get an expert from this field and expert from that field. And when all of it comes together, that collaborative nature kind of feels magical and you can get a lot of really crazy things done. Um, but with such a crazy career, I feel like someone in my position, like a graduate student or maybe an undergraduate student can often feel like you're larger than life and that you've never made a mistake. Um, <laughs> whereas I think that's incorrect because I mean, scientists make mistakes all the time. We fail all the time. And so I was curious, is there any like standout failure in your career or anything you're like, oh, that was a silly mistake? Well, so two things. One, I, would, I was just talking to my son. He's in middle school about this last night. I've had failures all the time throughout the entire thing. My dad would always say, research is exploring the unknown at the bounds of what we understand. And if we knew what we were doing, it would just be search. <laughs> it's research because we don't know what we're doing. And if you're not failing a lot, then you're not really pushing those boundaries. You're not really growing. You don't grow in, in a in an environment where you know what you're doing all the time, right? You grow in an environment where you're pushing the bounds of what you understand, what you know how to do. And as long as you're growing, I don't really see it as failure, right? So like we're fall down, but I feel like failure has this connotation that it's an end game, right? Like that it's the end, but really as long, I fail a lot, but failure would be stopped, like to not try anymore. Um, and so I, I'm pretty good at getting back up or pivoting, right? Like sometimes you got to stop banging your head against the wall and just go around the wall instead of trying to keep breaking through it or find a different way. Um, I think that's the engineer in me that I was like, sometimes when things aren't working, I just need to take a step back and look at the problem from a different aspect. Um, so we, you know, research, you fail all the time, or rather you don't succeed all the time. And as long as you keep trying, I don't really see it as failure. Uh, and, and that's true in, in not just the research side of things, but 
you know, you're constantly learning and growing in all aspects of this job. And so the teaching as well, like learning how I've tried things in class that just did not work. <laughs> so having to take a step back and get that feedback from the students and constantly looking to improve. Uh, one of the best parts of this job is that we do so many different kinds of things. So I'm involved in a, we do a lot of research we've talked about, but teaching is a core you know, responsibility of our jobs as professors, both in the classroom and in the lab. And so I work a lot on that, but I also work on, you know, broadening participation in STEM and thinking about how to effectively do that and enact change to policies that are throwing up roadblocks or, or limiting participation in different ways. And that's a whole field on its own. So I'm, I'm just constantly able to, you know, switch gears in this, think about biomaterials, but then think about, you know, what are best practices and in instruction, how to better engage students, how to better engage, you know, those middle schoolers or the high schoolers, or how do we get more people involved? And, um, and then things like this are is a newer area for me, but how do we do community outreach better? How do we really bring scientists and our community together better? Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with your comments about failure. Like, often on the show, I call myself a professional failure because I'll fail a dozen times in pursuit of one success, but, you know, you can't get deterred by that failure and you have to kind of push through. And then, you know, that on that day, your experiment does work and you get everything dialed correctly. Oh my gosh, all of a sudden you've, you've turned all those failures into success. So yeah. totally get it. Well, and it's, it's the key, right? You can't succeed without, you can't, you can't create something new, make a new discovery without having to fail. So there's a lot of discussion around this idea of people who are willing to take risks, the freedom to fail is really key for innovation. Mm -hmm. If you're not willing to take risks, you're not really going to invent. Um, and so I think that it's really important that we take the stigma away from failing and just see this as these are just our growing steps. So maybe I'll just stop saying fail and say, oh, that was an interesting growing step that I had today <laughs> that I learned from. And as long as, my dad was also a big believer in that no experiment is ever a failure if you learn from it. So instead mm -hmm. of saying that experiments fail, we say, what do we learn from this? And as long as we learn from it, then it wasn't a failure. Awesome, very, very wise. You touched on this a little bit, like the responsibilities that come with academia um, and one of your mentors talking about, oh, maybe you should do academia instead of industry. Could you provide some insight into the academic world versus the industrial world in terms of career prospects? Oh, that's a good one. So first of all, I want everyone to really throw out the notion that these are two like very distinct black boxes, like, you know, a black box and a white box in there completely different because it's really a spectrum. There's really a wide range of different academic careers and what you do with it and a wide range of different industry options. And so there's a lot of, and then there's a lot of overlap between them and the things you want to do. And so when, when my advisor said this to me, I'd always been very focused on industry going to like Medtronic and making better devices, right? And so she said this, I was like, oh, why did you say that? I had a plan. I'm a planner, like I had a plan. And so the first thing I did was ask a lot of questions from a lot of people. And I thought it would be very clear which one I should do. 
But I found out that a lot of the things that I wanted to do, like the research exploration and making new things, even the mentoring and outreach or scientific society involvement, there are industry jobs that do more of that. There are industry jobs that do none of that. Um, and in academia, you know, there's a wide range of different kinds of positions as well. So more teaching-based positions to, to very, uh, you know, there are academic positions, you know, in medical schools where there's no teaching responsibilities, at least in the classroom. And so you just have this spectrum of different kinds of opportunities in both academia and industry. I chose to go to academia because I really wanted my job to have a very specific role in teaching and mentoring and the freedom to do more of the service part. So more of the outreach that we've talked about, more of the broadening participation. I know people in industry that are doing that, but in academia, it's, it's a more clearly defined role. Um, and so I really wanted to pursue that. Now, I didn't know when I decided to go into academia, how much I would enjoy teaching. Um, it's not something I had any experience in before that, because again, I was thinking about industry. So I, I never TA'd, for example. Um, I really didn't have very much undergraduate mentoring experience. I just had very little. Um, and it's, it's one of the most rewarding parts of my job. Um, and so I don't know why my, I don't know what my advisor saw in me, but I am very grateful because I would have been very happy and successful in industry, but I, I think that academia for me is very, very fulfilling because I get to spend more of my time on this teaching and outreach aspects. Incredible. Um, I think that's a really good pivot into, you know, talking a little bit more about your outreach. So you're involved in a lot of programs that support women in the science and engineering fields, ranging from this networking luncheon with the Society for Biomaterials to Women's Initiatives Committee um, with the American Institute of Chemical Engineers, um, and then also UT Austin's Women in Engineering Summer Camp. Uh, could you describe why this outreach is so important to you, what it means to you, and why it's really important for society as a whole? I mean, I think that in general, we can talk about women in engineering in particular, but I think in general, to do the best science that we can, we need to have the broadest representation. There's a number of studies that show that, you know, diversity of teams, that a diverse team is going to perform better. Mm -hmm. I like to think about that. If we think about the counter argument, right, which is if everyone has similar lived experiences and training, you're naturally going to fall into kind of a group think scenario. And when you have different lived experiences and training, then you have more chances of bringing different perspectives to that team. And so really what we want to be able to do is tap the full potential of our population to create the greatest and most innovative teams because solving the kind of healthcare challenges that we're trying to solve are really, really challenging and difficult. And we need the best talent to be able to do that. Um, so not only do we need to recruit them, but we need to create environments where they can really thrive and be supported and included and full members of those teams. And so I think that that, and then the final thing that has become very, very clear to me in the last couple of years, especially is the idea of what's leading to healthcare disparities. Like we have stark healthcare disparities in our nation. And it really came down to 
the people doing the science will dictate what science is being done. And so if we want healthcare that really supports all of our population, we need the people doing medical research to come from all different avenues of our uh, population, all the different communities. So if all of our communities are not well represented in medical research, we will continue to have very stark healthcare disparities. Uh, it's a multifaceted problem, but I think that that's one of the key ones. For me, given my lived experiences as a woman engineer, I started doing activities that would uh, be around trying to encourage more women to pursue engineering, but also creating more supportive environments for women in engineering. Um, there, and that's at all levels. So I've always tried to do things, you know, not just at the faculty level, but graduate student level, at the undergraduate level, with outreach to middle school and high school. And so it's really just been driven by how do we create an, a, a community that really supports all different members. And in more recent years, I, that's brought in to be more focused on our Black scientists and Latina scientists as well. I totally agree. I mean, I think it's really disheartening to think about all the incredible scientific discoveries that are not being made because we lack that diversity that would inform us of a bunch of different perspectives. So I totally agree. I think more diversity in the sciences will only make it better and only help mankind or humankind reach its potential. Um, another outreach program that I thought was really, really cool uh, was this collaboration with the University of St. Augustine School of Sciences. Um, could you kind of give me some insight into what that is and kind of some of the outcomes that came out of that? Sure. So St. Augustine focuses on training. It's on physical and occupational therapy, right? So they, this is where therapists are, are trained. And they were doing outreach to the community for uh, special needs families. The first introduction I had with them was they were doing outreach to special needs families to make Halloween costumes for kids with special needs. And so I, I partnered with them on a makeathon. And so the idea for this was that we would take engineers from UT and partner them, engineering students from UT, and partner them with the uh, therapy students from St. Augustine. And we would have a week, and we did this over spring break. So in the first weekend, we would meet with the special needs family and see what they need. What could we do to help them? And then over the week, the therapists and engineering students would work together to come up with a solution to the, pro to the problem or need. And then the next week, we would provide the, the family with that uh, adaptive toy or adaptive system that, that we're looking at. And so this was everything from taking a child with cerebral palsy and letting them do, we did the uh, Go Baby Go, where we took one of those automated cars and we made it so that she could use it by uh, turning, like operating it with a switch that it was easier for her to use rather than trying to have to push a pedal, which she wasn't able to use. And I just remember she went up and down the hallway, turning the car on and off. And she just like had the biggest smile on her face. Uh, and we did a whole range of different kinds of projects depending on the special needs of the that family. And so for me, it was a way to, to provide something now to our community. We have these skills, even as engineering students, to be able to solve problems. So we can provide a real good to, to these families. But also from 
an engineering student training perspective, they were talking to a user, identifying how to take what they needed, turn it into an engineering design, and then actually see that whole process in a week where usually, you know, when you're doing an engineering dissertation, it's very long and protracted. And, you know, a lot of times for, at least for our research, we don't get to end user, you know, use. And so it's, it was a really great training opportunity that we could also do real benefit and good for these families. And so we did something, we're starting a new partnership with Dell um, and NAFA and a couple other um, uh, schools and uh, special needs uh, providers in the area to do adaptive toys for kids with special needs as well. And it's along the same, same goal, which is, you know, most biomedical engineering students have some idea of that they want to do good for people, help people, but we don't, we lose that because of the length of research. And so it really provides this great training opportunity, but also it really provides this connection to the community that I think is, that we've lost a lot in science. And so I'm really looking forward to continuing those, those activities. Wow. Um, yeah, it really stood out to me as someone with a special special needs brother and just this idea of being able to make an impact now in somebody's life with your engineering skills just seems like such a fantastic opportunity and really just impactful and like powerful. Um, so that kind of does it for my questions. I was curious, you know, before we go, do you have any uh, things you want to say to the audience while you have this platform? Any, any concluding remarks? I will, I'll just hit on, I guess, some of the highlights that we talked about, which is that I want you to think about failure as growth steps to success. And so don't, don't internalize that failure. So externalizing it as a step to success is one of the key things. If you like to solve problems, then engineering is for you and come talk to me about what those opportunities are. Uh, and then if you are an engineering student, like look for opportunities to connect um, and talk to our community more. We need more interaction between the community and science and engineering. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. It really was an absolute pleasure talking to you um, and best of luck in the rest of your career. Thank you so much. What's up, everybody? Um, thank you so much for watching the video. Uh, as you can see, we now have kind of like a pseudo recording studio set up in my bedroom uh, so you know you can get a little bit of visual uh, action with your goggles off experience um, yeah just know that I'm working at it I'm really trying to continue to step up the the podcast and trying to make it better and better and trying to get more and more esteemed people on the show and I'm really excited for kind of these next steps moving forward because I'm actually having uh, professors reach out to me now to do episodes and so it's really starting to uh, take the next steps, I think. So I'm really excited. Uh, thank you so much for your support. You know, drop a like, drop a comment, subscribe. You know, if you have a science fit question, please reach out. If you have a question about something we discussed on the show and you want to just chit chat about it, you know, I'm totally available. You can hit me up on Instagram or on Facebook, Brandon Milady. Um, my email is also in the, in the podcast description. So really, if any of you want to talk about anything in the show, uh, you can drop a comment or you know, message me directly. I'd be happy to go over anything we talk about. Um, yeah, thank you so much for listening and have a fantastic rest of your year. Cheers.
Thank you.